0: Hey, let's dive into the message today. We're in week number three of a series entitled Legacy. Legacy. And we're learning a few things. You know, we're learning that there's more to life than just this life. That God's called us as believers, as Christians, to live with an eye on eternity. James says that this life is like a mist or a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And my job and responsibility as your pastor is to constantly bring awareness to your life that we may know or we may not know. And so my job is to constantly say, hey, listen, don't get caught up. In just the things of this world. I know life gets busy. I know there's lots to do on your to do list. I know there's a lot of responsibilities and activities and things that want to fight and squeeze their way as high importance into your calendar. But don't forget that you were saved with a purpose, that God called you out of your old life into a new life, and that new life in Christ has some things and assignments that God has for your life. And if you get too busy, you get too distracted, distracted, you'll miss it. You'll step into eternity. And my greatest fear for you, if I had a fear, is that you would step into eternity having missed the opportunities that God had for you to do here while you were on, here on earth. And so there's a constant reality of, okay, I've got to live my life in such a way that I'm making a difference, that I'm living a, we call legacy life, a life of legacy. And how do we do that? Well, we give to something that will outlive ourselves. So we give our resources and our finances. That's a way that we do it. Financially, I'm sowing into the kingdom of God. We do that through tithes. And not just tithes, but we give over and above. And I know Phyllis and I are already talking about the legacy offering. If you're here at the church, you've been here for a while, you know every year we do a legacy offering. It happens the second weekend in December and it's where we come together as a church and we give over and above our ties, and we say, God, we're gonna bring this offering to you and then that offering accelerates the mission, vision, and impact of what God's doing here at Anchor Bend. That's a financial contribution to something that is greater than ourselves. But it's not just contributing financially. I mean, no, it's, it's your time. It's your talent. It's your effort. It's your skill. I mean, no, it's your ideas. That it's not just, see, I, I think for some of you, giving is a big deal. Financially, it's like, wow, that's a big part. You'll give everything else. Some of you, it's like you won't give any of the other stuff, but you'll give money. And I would say It's both. Some of you, it's like, I know I give money, but what do you do with your time, your efforts, your ideas? Your like, your, you, you, God gave you more than just money. And so we take the whole of our life and we say, God, I'm gonna leverage every aspect of my life. Why? Because I wanna live a life that matters. In the light of eternity, I wanna live a life that makes an eternal impact. I wanna live in a way that it outlives me. That's what living for legacy is all about. And I'm reminded this Week I've been reflecting a lot. My dad passed away two years ago on Wednesday. November 2nd will be his two-year uh, homegoing going uh, date. And I was re- just thinking a lot about my dad. It pops up in my calendar, and I thought, you know, my dad was such a great man. He loved God passionately. He loved people passionately, and he loved his family deeply. And so when I look at my dad, he, he really is the epitome for me of a man that lived a life of legacy. Just a week before he passed away, something interesting happened. He had asked my mom, hey, Debbie, you know, my mom, Debbie, give me some money. So I know for men, you're like, why is he asking his wife for money? Well, because a few years earlier, he had a stroke. And when he had the stroke, mom began to do the finances. And dad was really pretty much homebound and didn't get out very often. And so he would tell mom, hey, mom, can you give me some money? And she'd say, absolutely. When he asked for money, she'd go to the bank, pull out some cash and bring him home some cash. So, a week before he had passed, he had done that. He said, Debbie, can you go give me some, some money? She said, Sure, honey, absolutely. I thought I just gave you some money. He said, Well, you did. She said, You don't have it? He said, No, I, I don't have anything. Uh, I don't have anything. I don't have anything left. She said, well, okay, and she went to the bank, she got it, didn't think anything of it, gave him the cash, and a week later, he would pass away in the hospital. Well, when they gathered his things, they gave her his wallet. She opened up his wallet after receiving it, and this is what she saw, $5 in his wallet. Well, that's what he told her. I don't know if I told you that, but he told her, Deb, all I got is $5. I need more cash. So he opens it up. She's like, yeah, well, it's just like he said. But then this is what she also saw. Check this out. My dad was hiding money from my mom. <laughs> we got so tickled. In fact, I got so tickled, I took a picture of it. I'm like, there's a story in here somewhere. He had been hiding money. And so we all just kind of laughed to kind of help ease the pain of dad passing. But what we would later come to discover by talking to some of the grandbabies and the grandkids is that Paw they would ask Papa, hey Papa, do you have any money? And what Papa would do is when they asked for money, he'd pull out twenty dollar bills and he would give those twenty dollar bills to his grandbabies. Isn't that amazing? That when Paul was asking for more, the more he was asking for was not even for himself, but it was so that he could give it away to the people God placed in his life. I wonder if we could be like Pawpaw and ask God for more, but not for ourselves, but say, God, there is a hurting world, there is a dying world, and they need more. And God, would you give it to me so I could bless the people you put in my life? Thought about it, Paul. Paul was a legacy giver. You said, "Well, man, that doesn't even make sense." Well, think about this. Sometimes we can think living a life of legacy has to be big and significant. Like, like I got to get a lot of money. I got to do big things. No, no, no. His grandbabies were the only world he was around. He didn't get out. So what he had already decided was the little bitty world that my life is a part of. I'm going to find a way to bless the people that are in my world. Whatever it is that's in your hands, it may not seem like a lot. It may not feel like a lot. You may not have a lot of affluence or influence, but I wonder if you had an eye focused on eternity that you could see it a little bit different, that maybe my little could make a difference in the world that I'm a part of. That's what living a life of legacy is all about. Ephesians chapter four, verse one. I urge you, Paul is speaking, look at what he says, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. My, my dad, Paul, he was living a life worthy of the calling he had received. That's the, that's the life he was living in that moment. Here's what I would ask you. Are you living a life worthy of your calling. Wherever it is that God has placed you, maybe it's a single mother, maybe it's a stay-at-home mom, maybe you're working full-time, maybe you're working shift work, maybe you're a student in college, maybe you're in high school or junior high. All I'm asking you is there is a calling on your life. What are you doing with it? Are you making a difference? Are you just focused on you? Are you externally focused with an eye on eternity saying, God, What is it that you've asked me to do in this season of my life? Ephesians chapter three, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more Can I tell you that God has called you to do immeasurably more? I want to stir that more life up on the inside of you. I think some people have been satisfied with mediocrity, satisfied with low living, satisfied with being content in their little life, and God is saying, I've got more for you. I want you to live a life bigger than the life you're living right now. See, think about, I, I just keep going back to this thought, the God of the universe flung the stars into the sky and the universes and all the, the oceans and the mountain high and the valley low and everything in between. He lives on the inside of you when you're saved. The power of the Holy Spirit is on the inside. I wonder if God is just trying to break out in your life just a little bit. I wonder if we would say, God, I want to be a legacy person. I want to live a life of legacy. I wonder if God wouldn't just break out a little bit. That he would do something supernatural. Because I I just go back to Paul, It wasn't even about him. But he wasn't afraid to ask. Some of you, the enemy has lied to you, said you're insignificant. What you have doesn't matter. You'll never amount to anything. But I wonder if God wants to raise you up and tell you that you're a champion, that you're a child of God, that you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that God wants to display his glory on this earth through His power. I love that look. It says, more, uh, immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to His power. So, what does that mean? God wants to get involved in your life of legacy that's at work within us. To Him, here's, here's what I love to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, when we live a life of legacy, it doesn't build your reputation, doesn't build my reputation, doesn't give you influence and affluence for you. It says, hey, there is a God in heaven. Why would you do that? Because God loves you. Then people say, my God, there must be a God in heaven. There's no way you would have done that by yourself. You could have done that by yourself. And it begins to give God glory in this earth. I want to inspire you to live an extraordinary life. Little things make a big difference. Live a life of legacy. Live a life of legacy. Live a life of legacy. I think there's three, there's more, but here's just a few legacy stoppers, things that will stop you from living a life of legacy. First one, I think there's just a wrong view of self. We see ourselves as through our own lens. And I want to challenge you that God sees you differently than probably the way you see yourself. See, and, and even others. See, people define you by how they meet you, but God defines you by how he made you. That there's greatness on the inside of you, and you can't allow labels to limit what God wants to do inside of you. And so we've, we've got to say, God, what is your view in my, of my life? So we've got to get rid of and identify insecurity, fear, inadequacy, reluctance, Those are the things that we begin to see as a filter for our life. And and there's a sense of false humility. You gotta be careful about that because humility is not when you think less of yourselves, like I'm insignificant. It's just when you think of yourself less. I begin to think about others. I I know who I am in Christ. I'm not trying to be boisterous or prideful. I just know who I am. And knowing who I am gives me the ability to step forward in faith. 1 Peter 9. but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I think another legacy stopper is a wrong view of people. I think it's easy for us to get a wrong view of people. Sometimes they can be frustrating, obnoxious, um, we tend to find ourselves if you're not careful, using people. Jim Rohn said something that I thought was so good. If you love money, you'll use people. If you love people, you'll use money. Right, and so we find ourselves: am I using you as a platform or a stepping stool or, you know, am I trying to just get something out of you instead of just saying, God, you brought people into my life so that I could, I could help meet some needs, that I could bless them, that I could be a contributor to what you want to do in their life. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, this is Jesus they're talking about. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Imagine how Jesus saw people. Imagine what that would be like because you got people all around. In other words, he knew this just because they got a smile on their face doesn't mean there's not pain in their heart. A lot of people got smiles and jokes, and it looks like life is going good, but on the inside, they're dying, they're they're without God, there's deep, deep pain, and if we would begin to see the world as God sees the world, it would change us. We would begin to say, God, how can I just make a difference? Let me say one thing, let me do one thing, let me give something, God, give me a heart of compassion for your people. And we got to be careful too, because sympathy and compassion are not the same. Sympathy means that you understand how a person is feeling. Compassion is a willingness to relieve their suffering. That means I'm willing to step into their life. That means I'm willing to make some investments. That means I'm willing to take a risk even if what I do is not reciprocated by them. I'm going to do what I can to ease the suffering of the person God has placed in my life. And Aren't you glad Jesus went to the cross Willingly gave his life, that it didn't stop with sympathy, but he had a compassion and a love and gave himself fully and freely so that we could experience the free gift of salvation. Jesus was full of compassion for people. I think another legacy stopper is a wrong view of God. I think if we want to live a life of legacy, we've got to evaluate how we see God. How do you see God? do you see God aloof? Do you see God present? Do you see him as powerful and great and almighty? Or do you see him as impotent? Now, you may never talk about it, but the truth is lots of Christians believe God can do something, God wants to do something, but he'll never do it in their life. What is your view of God? What are you willing to take risk for? In other words, I believe in you so much, God, that you want to move in this life that when you ask me to do something that could be a little crazy, could be misinterpreted, that could make me look stupid and ignorant or out of step, I'm willing to step out and it's not because of me, it's because I know how big and great you are. I've evaluated the God of heaven who I serve and I'm willing to take a risk. In other words, I don't have to build my reputation, I'm willing to go all out to build his reputation. So God, God, I'm 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 evaluating my view. What do I see God as? And look at Jeremiah 32:17. Oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Look at what he says, nothing is too hard for you. You know, when you see God in this way and you begin to live a legacy life, a life where you're believing for God to do the impossible because of what he spoke to you to do, I tell you, it affects every area of your life. How I many you know when you're believing and stepping out in faith and stretching your capacity and stretching your life, how I many you know you pray differently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever been in a complacent season? You're like, oh, it was good, was, it was, it was good. I prayed over my food, read a little bit of the Bible quoted a few scriptures, made a few confessions. But how many know when you're in a season of stretch, when you know that it's bigger than you, that it's greater than you, that there's no way that I can get out of this or fulfill this or do it? I mean, oh, you begin to fast. You begin to show up in corporate prayer. you like not just praying for your, your meal, but you're like, hey, we, we all need to just pray right here for a little bit. Why, what, what's happened? You're living on the edge of Christianity. You're living on the edge where there's excitement. How many of you hadn't felt that excitement? If you hadn't felt that excitement, I wonder if God's not trying to wake you up because we ought to live that way. There ought to be something inside that in every season we're stretching, we're going further, we're doing more. It changes the way we live our lives. It stretches us. John fourteen twelve. I tell you, I love this, what, what Jesus says. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have done or been doing, he will do even greater things than these because I go to the Father. And that's the title of the message, greater things, greater things. Have you been involved in greater things in your life? Where's the greater in your life? Because God's calling us to do greater things. He's stretching our capacity. He's allowing us to be a part of his miracles. And I want to challenge you to to say, God, I'm ready for the greater in my life. Now, to do this, it takes faith. I mean, you're you're not just going to casually make it and casually get by. you got to increase your faith. you got to live a life of faith to live for the greater. It takes great faith. And so I want to help us build our faith this morning. I want to help us build it. Now, I want us to go to 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 9 through uh, 18. 2 Kings 3, 9 through 18. I shared a little bit about this at First Wednesday. If you were here for First Wednesday, you would have heard this passage of Scripture, but you're not going to hear what I'm talking about today because I've got a different angle that I felt like the Lord wants to speak to you this morning. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 9. Let me just set it up. This is a story where you have three kings fighting against the Moabites. So you have the king of Judah, king of Israel, king of Edom. They are trapped in the desert. They had been walking around, marching for seven days. They're in a desert. There's no water. They're dehydrated. Their animals are about to die. They're about to die. And so they now inquire of the Lord for God to help them. And God brings them Elisha, who is the prophet of the day. And Elisha begins to speak forth what God will do. And I want us to see his words and what happens in the story. And I'm gonna give you a couple of ideas. So in verse nine, so the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom after a roundabout march of seven days. Now, I think that's so fascinating because they're using an old strategy to win a new battle. Remember the Joshua, the marching of Jericho, seven, walk around seven days, seven times on the last day. So, so here's what I would say. When you hadn't heard from God, a lot of times you'll go back to an old strategy to fight a new battle. Wow. They, they didn't inquire of God before the battle, so they've gone back to what once worked. What once worked won't work now. So the army had no more water for themselves or for their animals with them. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here? That we may inquire of the Lord through him. The officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your fathers and the prophets of your mothers. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at or even notice you. And then verse 15, it says, now bring me a harpist. So this is the prophet He's going to do what they ask, inquire of the Lord, bring me a harpist, someone who can play uh, while he's inquiring of the Lord. So it says, while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha and he said, This is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. What a powerful, powerful story. You got these people, they're trapped They are in the middle of a battle. There is no hope for them. They need a miracle, and we see God begin to do a few things in their life that actually bring about the miracle for their life. Now, what I want to do is really use this to show us how we can build our faith, and so here's the first thing that you'll notice, and I want us to take this. If you're writing down, taking notes, write this down. Faith is birthed in God's presence, Faith is birth. I I think we've forgotten that. I know that faith is built by the word of God, but faith is birthed in God's presence. So the word of God is what continues to build our faith, but some of you, you don't have faith because you don't have presence. And we're like, God, I want more faith. And God is like, I'll give you more faith, but you need more presence. I mean, Elisha, here he is, the prophet. He is the man of the hour. He's the man of God. And we find that this man doesn't get any faith to be released in God's people until he brings in the harpist. And it's interesting that it says, while the harpist was playing... In other words, it was the presence of God that brought the answer from God. It was the presence of God that sparked faith inside of the people that were dying. How many of you are sitting here today feeling like you're dying on the inside? And I wonder if sometimes the only time we get presence is on Sunday mornings and Wednesday, first Wednesday, and if that's all you get I'm glad you're getting it, but we've got to develop a life. If we're going to live the extraordinary, the God-sized life, a life of legacy, we've got to live in the presence of God so he can birth faith within us in a way that our life in the light of eternity would make sense. And I'm just reminded, you know, here we have this building, and some of you, you're sitting, all of us are sitting in the middle of a miracle. But some of you, you weren't a part of the journey, and I just got to go back to just reminding us that this building is a miracle. It's not because of us, it's because of God Almighty, but it took us in the presence of God, giving us the faith of God to be able to buy this building, to retrofit this building, and to see lives perpetually change from now until Jesus comes back. And some of you may not know the story, but... 2018, we felt like we had a word from God that He was going to give us land and a building. So by 2019, our trustees and some people on our building committee began to look for a property. We acknowledged this property as a possible place for us to build our church, have a permanent footprint. And we began to do due diligence and planning and all the things that we needed to do. And what we found was this building was adequate. But it was going to take a million dollars for us to raise as the down payment for both purchasing the property and starting the construction. So we could afford the monthly payments, but it was the upfront money that was the big giant that needed to be slayed. And I'll never forget that our our teams are all like, we feel like this is God, that that yes, we've got the amount that we need because I believe some people try to slay giants, but you've never named the giant. David slayed Goliath. Like, what is the mountain that you've gotta climb? What's the giant you've gotta slay? Well, we needed a million dollars. And I'll never forget, I've never, been, just so you know, I've never raised a million dollars <laughs> until then. Like, it, we'd raised a couple of hundred thousand, we were portable, we're just, we're nine, you know, at the time, I think we were six years old as a church, and it's a big step. And the, the, we had consultants, they're like, well, we can do it if it's a miracle and God's people get involved. So we, we did all the due diligence, was like a crazy leap that some people, uh, I think they want to take a leap, and God says, take a step. Right. So here we are, and I'll never forget, it was a Saturday morning prayer, and we're about to start rolling it out, and I I, I was, one moment I'm full of faith, and one moment I'm full of doubt. Anybody ever been there? You're like, God, I, I think you can. I believe you can, and then you're like, but God, what if you don't? <laughs> We'd never stretched for something like this, and... I went to the Saturday morning corporate prayer at 9 o'clock. Back then we had it at Saturday at 9 a.m. And the, the way we start prayer is two songs of worship. And it was just heavy on my heart because we need to make a decision. Well, I'm the one that's got to lead us through the decision. And I'll never forget just the heaviness. I began to sing and worship, and I hadn't told this part a lot, but something happened in worship. I mean, I could just feel it. was one of those moments where if I ask God something, he's going to answer. You ever had that moment where, like, he's standing like, God, in your presence? And then I opened up at the end of that, we began to have silent prayer, corporate prayer individually. And uh, I opened up a five-year journal, which I'd never even bring with me, just happened to bring it. I just asked God, God, are we supposed to do this? Like, I don't want to make a mistake, but I'm willing to do whatever. And Jeremiah 32, 27 was on the top of like page five. After having just asked that question, it says, I am the Lord. Is there anything too hard for me? That in the presence of God, he burst faith in my heart. And I can tell you that that is the moment. Pavel and Bobby and our trustees, they'll tell you that there was a resolve that was put inside of me. It was like that faith of God was solidified. There was no floundering to the left or floundering to the right. Now, there were many days where we're like, all right, God, how are you going to do it? But faith was built in his presence. And look at Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I wonder if some of you hadn't experienced his presence because it's a half-hearted pursuit. God, I'm going all in. God, I'm asking you, let him speak to you. Why? Because he's gonna build faith for you to live the life he's called you to live. Second thing that we, we see from this passage is faith goes from inspiration to participation. Like it's gotta be more than I'm just inspired. Look at verse 16. It says, And he said, This is what the Lord says: make this valley full of ditches. I don't know about you, but ditches are hard work. Anybody ever done construction? I used to work construction. Steve and I used to uh, work for a company that poured slabs. We dig ditches. Look, digging a ditch is hard. The weather is hot. It's grueling. You get exhausted. You get calluses on your hands. I mean, there ain't nothing easy about digging a ditch. What's God saying? God's saying, you do your part, and I'll do my part. See, God could have just immediately brought rain from the sky, but that's not what he did. He said, listen, I know what you want, but I want you to dig. In other words, let me say it like this. Some of you are waiting on God for him to do what it is that you believe he's promised you, and God is waiting on you. Waiting is not passive. I find when I'm waiting on God, He's got an assignment. That as I'm waiting for the miracle, He's already directed me what I want to do or what He wants me to do. And I often find I don't want to do it because it seems insignificant. It doesn't really matter. That doesn't really look like my miracle. And God said, If you'll dig a ditch, I'll bring the water. You dig the ditch, and I'll bring the water. He wants us to participate in the miracle, and it doesn't always make sense. I love Jesus. You see him all throughout the, the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're new to the faith, go read the, we call them synoptic gospels. But Jesus, he heals the blind man. And I, I love it because he gets mud, he spits uh, his, you know, does all that, puts it in the blind man's eyes. Well, you would think he'd just, hey, remove the mud right then and there, be healed. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus spit in his eye, put mud, all that, and then told him to go wash. Why couldn't he have just gotten a water basin and just washed it out right there? Because he wants us to participate in the miraculous. There's a part for us to play and a part for him to play. And when we meet in the middle and I do what I can do, he does what he can do. Think about the the little boy with the sack lunch. It's one of my favorite passages. Think about Jesus feeding the 5,000. They said it was more than that with women and children, somewhere up to 20,000 people. I just imagine being a young teenage boy sitting there with a sack of lunch, that little boy was a spectator. He was there to watch Jesus. Come on, just like everybody else. They wanted to hear Jesus, let him see some miracles, perform some things. But there came a point where they needed to feed the people and that little boy decided, I'm no longer gonna spectate, I'm gonna participate. I'm gonna take my little and see if I can give it to the hands of the one who can make it much. Go from a spectator to a participator. And I, I often think even of this building, just continuing the story of the building, you know, never, i never, I mean, there's just so many cool, th- I mean, I don't even think you realize, it was 2017, I was standing back over here, we had pallets of water, and I called the owner of the building, you know, we're doing hurricane relief, had about 50 semis come through and I'm like, this would be a great church. So I called him, how much would you sell it for? He said, 2.3 million. I'm like, oh, can't afford that. Uh, you're going to give us a discount. He said, 2.3 million, <laughs> which the funny thing is in 2019, 2020 we bought it. It was the same price, which is pretty awesome. But I think about that. I just think about all the stories of what God has done. I, Pavel, right here, we had food sitting right here. Back over there, the women's restroom, the men's restroom, I don't know if there was a loading dock. That's where all the goods came in. This place was filled four or five times. Remember that, Stephanie? Four or five times full from front to back and went out into 400, over 400 locations. I mean, an absolute miracle. And then to see it be transformed like this is nothing short of a miracle. How many didn't even know it was a tractor supply or forgot it was a tractor supply? Look at what God has done in the middle of all of this. And, and what I find is people will say, well, you know, and I take lots of people on tours, they say, well, man, you guys are just lucky. Oh, God blessed you. And, and I wanna say, can I just be honest? We dug some ditches. Like, I wanna, first off, I don't, I don't say, like, like, I'm not, like, it is all God. But can I tell you about the hundreds of hours, intercessors, Ollie, Mary Jane, my mom, would come on this campus and walk around this building, come inside this building, and pray hour after hour after hour. Can I tell you about all the meetings we would have? Phyllis and I would leave church, and Tara and the legacy team, I'd, I'd have personal tours where we would bring individuals and families, and we would walk them. Pavel, actually created all these tape outlines. If you remember, you might have been a family. We had outlines of the offices and the children, we outlined this stage, and I Walking people through, say one day we'll preach the gospel right here, and the hundreds of people that would walk through here night after night, month after month, meeting after meeting, vision meetings. We did finance meetings. We did pre-construction meetings. What am I telling you? Did we perform and then God just gave us something? No, but he did say, be faithful, dig that ditch, have that meeting, gather those people, pray over that building. And then as we did what God said, God was moving on the hearts of people in the background. And then in the middle, there was this miraculous miracle that we all get to experience. What are we doing? We're just digging ditches. Did one meeting in and of itself solve everything? No, but we were digging, digging. So here's my question. What has God asked you to dig? What has he asked you to do? And you're like, well, it's not that significant. It's not about whether you think it's significant. It's are you obeying what God asked you to do? Your job is obedience. God's job is the miracle, living a life of legacy, then here's the third and last thing. Once we go from inspiration to participation, write this down if you're taking note, faith continues regardless of what is seen. Look at what it says in verse 17. But this is what the Lord says, you will neither see wind nor rain. Can you just imagine this? Ponder what this means. In other words, you're not even gonna see God working. He normally brings it through the rain. He's not going to do it. I wonder if some of us stopped doing what God asked us to do because we couldn't see God at work in our life. Or we thought it would come one way and God says, I'd like to water it a different way. And so what we see here is this like, hey, listen, I, I, I know you're not going to see it. It's not going to come through the rain, but what I'm going to do is bring it a different way. And there, what the historians and the theologians say is there was a flash flood on the mountains in the desert that came rushing down to fill the valley of ditches. Why did God do it that, that way? I think it's because he doesn't want to do the same miracles the same way. He wants to shake it up a little bit so that you really have to say, I'll obey even if I don't see you at work. I know that you don't have that person. You're trying to restore relationship, reciprocate your text of love, your words of affirmation, the time you're investing. But can you keep loving on them even when they continue to be mean, a- angry, and hateful to you? Can you keep tithing when you feel like God's blessing and chasing you down? Can you keep giving of your time even when you feel like what you're doing is not making a difference? Yeah, but you got to remember, it's not about what you see, it's about what you believe. Faith. Faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, we walk by faith. If you're going to live a life of legacy, we got to stop looking with the natural. I know God did it this way in the past. He's not going to do it that way again. I mean, I'm just telling you, we've been doing this a long time and not only with the church, but every time it's just different. He uses different people, different situations, different circumstances. Why? Because your dependence is not upon the person, but upon him. I know some of you came discouraged talking legacy and you showed up, you're here, but you're like, God, what I have is just not enough. Or maybe you're disappointed that life hasn't turned out the way you thought. Probably even frustrated. Maybe you tried. I tried the greater and it didn't work. I understand. I, I, I don't have all the answers. I don't know why, but I do know this. God's asking for you right now to step into greater. And don't allow the pain of the past, the trauma of failure, the trauma of missed opportunities and expectation to stop you from living a legacy life that God's calling us to create. Imagine a church where every person who's a part says, I'm gonna live a legacy life in my world, whatever that looks like at the hospital, in the courtroom. In the classroom, at home, at your neighborhood, whatever that looks like, whatever impact that is, just like Paul, with his grandbabies, living a legacy life. Maybe that's you. I, I don't know where it is, but what if we had a church full of people with an eye on eternity? Imagine the impact. We would be famous in heaven. Oh, that's a place. They get it. They get it. Their eyes. They're adjusted.